Chapter Twenty Six of I, Mary MacLean by Mary MacLean. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Chapter Twenty Six. Sweet fine sweatings of blood. Tomorrow. Merely from the viewpoint of outward intellect, this book of myself is oddly difficult to write. My most loved thing to do, and my hardest thing to do, is to write. It is hard to catch and hold with mental fingers one's own emotions, and then doubly hard to write them. A feeling is something without the words, and without even the thought. To put it into the thought, and then into the words, is a minuter task than would be the translating of a Francois Villon poem into Choctaw. It's a knowing person who realizes her own emotions, and a knowinger who recognizes what is what, who is who, which is which, among them. I look inward at me, and I see an emotion of world weariness, and I want to write it. I write it as nearly as I can, but when I have done, it's not world weariness that I wrote, but its twin sister, boredom of the moment, which happened to be next the other when I looked. I am glad to have transcribed boredom of the moment. It is the finer and thinner and more elusive of the two. But how and why did I fail of world weariness? But sometimes when I aim at fear or resentment or surprise, it may be world weariness I'll bring down unexpectedly with a clean wing-shot. When I set out to write the look in my eyes, it may be the feel of my fingers that comes out in my round writing. Another time, I think I'm writing my bad tooth, until I get it written when it turns out to be my little eye-wrinkles. Having failed at the thought, often I fail of the words. When I have a particularly Mary MacLean thought to express, I review the top tier of my vocabulary of words to find proper ones for it. They are all very nice words in that top tier, neatly washed and dressed and hair-brushed and tidied up, like the children in a small private school. Words like necessary and irresolute and crockery and inconvenience and broth and a prize. Good words and useful if one's thought is radical or risky and wants conserving. I call some of them to me and question them and consider them and ponder a bit and decide they will none of them suit. Then I go to the bottom tier, the unkemptest of words in the untidiest attire, words like traips and nab and glim and henery and chape and plash, and I at once reject those as too carelessly bred for my terse thoughts to associate with, but for my uncombed, ungroomed, grimy face thoughts I turn to them. Then I glance over a tier of mysterious words, spruce but with undefinable vagabond faces, such as whelk and morger and frush and knurl and yare and hyaline. They are expressive, but of a kind it's well to use with caution, the kind that may trip up thoughts that would make them their medium and lead to slips twixt cups and lips. So I dismiss them with a mental reservation of one or two to use if I fail to find right ones among the less mysterious. Then I turn to a tear that represents the virile middle class inwards, the lower case words, the mob and riot words, the words for poets and anarchists and prophets, such as adroit and nightingale and gallows and gutter 
and woman and madrigal and death and i say without doubt here are my words but i use discretion i know that tier of words to be of the nature of bombs of strychnine of a dynamic force resistible against all human and worldly substance they also must be used cautiously and with a sparing hand with caution one can handle a bomb and sparingly one can eat strychnine and one can control any dynamic force by studying its tendencies and keeping out of its direct road it behooves one to heed those conditions in broaching the countermining counter-irritant words if one would avoid blowing oneself analytically broadcast so i may have found the right sort of words and measured their possibilities and pitfalls but again it's a nerve-wracking task to choose out one word from seven one from five one from two i see two words which may be the only proper ones out of ten thousand to bear my thought the two may be echo and afterglow each an unacknowledged half-sister to the other meaning respectively something living and growing and vibrant in my spirit ears and fading and dying and radiant before my spirit eyes but because my spirit ears may glow bright and hot from what they heard or my spirit eyes may seem to themselves to gaze a moment at a soundless sound an unheard melody of keats i miss the ray-like distinction and i write afterglow where my true word was echo but another time i write echo perfectly and masterfully to my own delight having meant afterglow so it is there's no plain sailing on this analytic sea and if there were it would not be worth while i want nothing 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 that comes easily what comes easily i distrust be it love or language if afterward proves dead sea fruit what i suffer to get i know to be life food even if it drugs or pains or poisons me it is one lesson i have learned without doubt it is so with everybody all around one sees only surfaces husks anyone looking casually at this me sitting writing might say how easily and smoothly and well she writes how kind of god to give her so light a task in life how complacently go her working hours and i looking casually at oh miss lily walker singing and swaying and glancing sideways in a gorgeous broadway chorus i might say how easy a task in life has that brainless gazelle to work with her body and not even with the sweats and sinews of it like a scrubwoman and not with the facile shames of it like a lorette but with the grace and suppleness and beauty and suggestions of it aided by a soprano throat and a soprano face with only the effort it wants to fling it all over footlights and the pastime gets her her livelihood but whoever marks me writing as one doing an easy task because i write along rapidly enough considers nothing of my mental travail for the thought my blind grope for the language my little nervous anguish of choice among the double-edged and triple-pronged words and the neat concise failure of the result and no i do not thus comment on miss lily walker i have an appreciative pleasure in her charm and suppleness and bird and butterfly prettiness but after a bit of contemplation and analysis of her surface 
I deduce the unconscious struggle it may be for Miss Lily Walker to be subtle on nights when she does not feel supple, the thin agony of being sweet when she does not feel sweet, the neurotic torture of being seductive regularly by the night, the more that perchance the struggle always is unconscious. Her brain being required in her body, it's to be assumed that there's none in her head, but I can deduce a nervous red heart beating illogically somewhere in her being, protesting dumbly sometimes against one irking them, sometimes against another, sometimes against all the items in Miss Lily Walker's scheme of life, but beating and beating on, like a little automatic drum wound up tight and tossed into a maelstrom to beat itself out. I'd like, like with breathless eagerness, to read the analysed being just beneath Miss Lily Walker's skin. Everybody, every human being, is wildly real, radiant and desolate. With no amount of temperamental struggling could Miss Lily Walker analyse a psychic emotion of her own and then find the right word combination to write it in. With no conceivable effort of mine could I manage to be supple when I do not feel supple. So Miss Lily Walker and I are quits at this game. It totals up evenly, always round. Nobody gets through one real day, though it is a day full of real lies, without a demoniacal struggle of soul or a heavy blow on the personal solar plexus. And I make not even the intellect side of this book, which is a realness to me, without sweet, fine sweatings of blood. End of chapter 26